0: Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with gift mode on Etsy. Welcome to the Notice Podcast number 870. This episode brought to you by
1: Loot Crate. It's it's toys. You're sending yourself toys every month, and why would you not do that? Especially May's theme is Guardians. All right? Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Star Wars, Destiny, Goonies... One lucky subscriber will win a Mega Crate featuring a premium format group figure from Sideshow Collectibles that stands over 22 and a half inches tall. And there's a ton of other prizes. Um, Loot Crate's great. It, it, if you want to make yourself feel good uh, you know, every month at the same time, you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and you receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, it's over. But these are all authentic, licensed, exclusive products. And uh, every month there's a different theme with new items. It's over a $45 value for less than $20 a month. So head over to LootCrate.com slash Nerdist. Enter the code Nerdist to save 10% off any new subscription today. I'm staring at Katie Levine across from me at this podcast table. She uh, seems uh, very official right now. (laughs) I see that you're holding... Your phone up and you're about to read, I assume, what can only be the Nerdist Community Corkboard. It
2: is. First of all, I just want to plug some things that we have going on at Nerdist. Other things at Nerdist, like all of our other podcasts. Like right now, it's the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. And if you're into hockey, you should definitely be listening to Puck Soup. We also have great podcasts like Bizarre States, Cashing In with TJ Miller, uh, half hour, happy hour. You made it weird. We just have so many great ones at Nerdist.com. Also, don't forget about the Nerd Melt showroom. At I don't Meltdown forget about comics. It. Yep, there's great shows every single night, and they're cheap. They're like eight bucks, so you should be going to that and check out the Nerdist School. And see if there's uh, any writing classes, improv classes, anything that you want to take.
1: Hey, you're really pushing this Nerdist stuff on me pretty I hard, am. Katie. Jeez, but I, also I get But know-
2: I also have another one. This is from Jen Reeve, and she wants to promote an organization called 500 Women Scientists. The mission is to promote a diverse and inclusive scientific community that brings progressive science- science-based solutions to local and global challenges. Uh, Anyone who self-identifies as a woman and scientist is welcome to join, and there are local pods with regular meetings across the nation and a launch party coming up in uh, June in Boulder, Colorado. So check it out at 500 org.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Katie Levine. No problem. And I'd also love to throw a plug for the ID10T Festival. Yes. June 24 and twenty-five. Uh, With bands like Weezer and OK Go and Car Seed Headrests and the Mowglies. And then comedians like Dimitri Martin and Michael Che and Garfunkel and Oates and Nikki Glaser and April Richardson. uh, And also a Comic-Con in the middle of it with a ton of creators and comic book artists and uh, pop culture stuff. And also uh, panels that we're booking panels that I can't announce yet, but I'm very excited. There's some really good ones coming up. Uh, So go to ID10TFest.com. ID, the number 10TFest.com. Get tickets if you're in uh, the Silicon Valley area. June twenty four and twenty five, we'll be at the Shoreline Amphitheater. That's
2: close to San Francisco. It's very close I to used San to go Francisco. To shows there,
1: it's a great space. I
2: figured out how to get there in high school, so you. guys So you, to you know how to can get figure there. it out. Yeah. You're
1: probably not in high school, but if you are, join <laughs> us. And uh, yeah, so I, I hope it. Uh, I hope this experiment works of putting all these things that I love together. Uh, but at any given point in the day. You'll, you will have something fun to do. So uh, join us. Get tickets. We'll see you there. This episode is Guy Ritchie, uh, who's promoting King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which is out Friday, May 12th. Um, Guy Ritchie was great. Oh, my God. The podcast just went in this – it started in just this whole wonderful uh, direction. And and I actually, I, I – Every so often I'll have an experience during a podcast where I go, holy shit, I need to be writing this down because I need to remember this for my own life.
2: Well, you know we record it. So, Wait, what? Yeah, we record all of these. Oh, I thought
1: these. I thought we just put out intros as a podcast. I thought that was the whole. <laughs> this is
2: the whole podcast. I thought that was it. Yeah, do you you've even been know recording that? all of these. All of them. All eight hundred and seventy. Who would listen to me talk that long? I think there's a few people.
1: Maybe just a few, but don't think about that too hard, or you might decide not to. <laughs> um, this episode also brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Uh, if you're hiring. And you want to know where to post uh, your job to find the best candidates, or you're posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. So if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post on all the top job sites. And now you can with ZipRecruiter. You can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook, Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter's handy website shows trending career fields, cities, searches. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. You just post once, and then you just watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No email juggling. There's no calls that you're going to have to field. You just quickly screen the candidates, you rate them, and you hire the right person for whatever you need that fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 500 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses, Right now, Nerdist podcast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com/nerdist. Uh, one more time to try it free, go to ziprecruiter.com/nerdist. And now, the Nerdist podcast number 870 with Guy Ritchie. Katie, roll the thing.
0: Now entering nerdist.com.
1: if this were a carnival, you'd have to fork
3: over a, pri- uh, a prize. No, but I tell you, I fancy myself at this until it's out of our weight zone. So I'm good in the weight zone from 175 yep. to 1, sure. well, maybe 200. Outside of that, I'm fucking... <laughs> so I don't know anyone that's 144. How the fuck can you be 144? I
1: don't know. I don't know. I just don't... Uh, I don't know. Did
3: you ever hold weight? Do you have to be careful about what you eat?
1: I held weight when I used to drink, yeah. But that, I quit that in 2003. I, I lost like 40 pounds when I quit drinking. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. Cause it, but it, so what I realized was that when I stopped, I was just basically like a garbage bag of water. And it just – it all fell off. But then I also wasn't eating at 3 o'clock in the morning. So I, I don't know. But I'm, I'm – yeah, I'm just a – Why would you stop drinking? Um, I mean I'm sure there were a variety of reasons. But first and foremost, I think I probably uh, – my career was dead. I was not happy. My dad – like I knew there was a history of it in my family. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I was I, – I knew I would have to do it sooner or later. Oh, okay. I knew, Like I knew – I you know, when I got to a point where I was drinking in the morning because I felt so bad from the night before, I was kind of laughing to myself and going, man, this probably isn't going to go on for much longer. Like I knew oh, – I yeah. knew that something was wrong. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I just – yeah, I quit. And uh, it turned out to be a good decision for yeah, me. Well, not- for me.
3: It's, it's- – when does it ever turn out to be a bad decision
1: yeah i you know that's i i, I like to say that but i also i i'm careful not to for people that oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. do i don't want them to feel like yeah. i'm putting my shit onto them but i that's but i agree it doesn't really if you do it with a, any degree of regularity it doesn't really help anything uh i don't think although they might go well the italians have low heart disease because they drink wine every day like all right well fine but
3: uh it's a it's a funny old subject that one isn't it It just feels like if you can pick it up, put it down, leave it for a couple of months, pick it up, put it down, then you haven't got an issue. just the regularity of it.
1: I think so. But I also think that people who have a healthy relationship with it don't think about it in terms – because I know a lot of people will go, yeah, you know, I stopped drinking for like a month just to see if I could do it. And I go, well – but people with a normal relationship to it don't think that way. They don't think I should – I cannot do this for a month and then do it again. Like, they just don't think about it, you know? So it's just not – I feel like there are certain things that are a byproduct of obsessive thinking because I don't think alcohol is really the problem. It's really like an obsessive – it's an obsessive mindset. It's a crutch. It's a crutch. It's a symptom of, of of a certain mentality. That I have. Why don't we
3: talk about crutches?
1: <laughs>
3: I know I like crutches.
1: You do like crutches. I do.
3: Well, no. I mean I like the subject of crutches.
1: Let's talk about crutches then. Do you, is it a chair? Yeah. Now oh, I'm getting now just oh, so walking with the rug. Yeah. Let's talk about crutches. <laughs> what what type of crutches do you like? Um. I have a whole
3: galaxy of crutches which I don't like at all actually, and I like the liberation of not having any crutches. I feel as though if you're in a room. This is going to be a rather poor way of explaining this. But once you know that you're in charge in the room, in other words, you can't manipulate anyone else to help you, Mm -hmm. to give you a full sense of self, then you're liberated and then you're free. Right. The problem is, is that we're constantly, as a default setting, looking for different crutches, booze, smoking. But really the root of all of that seems to be asking other people to tell you who you are and that seems to be the root of crutches. Get rid of all the crutches and then you can find yourself as yourself and then you're
1: completely independent to to to, to feel how you wish to feel. Sure. I think a lot of it uh, a lot of it has to do with control issues. You know, like like any anything I think most of the things that people do or a lot of things that they crutch on are just to kind of give them at least the the sense of even if it's a false sense of stability or something you know, it's like, why do people stay in bad relationships? Well, because they're familiar, and they just want to feel something tethered that is familiar to them, whether or not it's good or bad for them. And so, I think it is a, I think there is a sense of it that's just a, a we're terrified. A lot of people are terrified, uh, and they need something to to tether them.
3: But let's go further. Sure, let's if, let's take push to shove. Okay, and. This would be my take, is that once you've taken away all of those crutches, the idiosyncrasies of that false self, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a self that relies on other people to tell it what it is, it relies on reflection. It relies on – it's the antithesis of being independent. And it has idiosyncrasies, this false personality, if you will. Right. And because it's so – vulnerable because it has really no legs to stand on it doesn't really exist that it's constantly in a state of flux and anxiety so it can't help but be permanently nervous and gagging for stability and control sure now what happens so you can give up drinking i could give up drinking i could stop asking people to tick my like box on instagram or whatever (laughs) it is and then these are just idiosyncrasies But what happens if you relinquish the entire false personality? You know, this is what various people talk about when they talk about spiritual epiphany of sorts. When you relinquish everything, when you take a step off the cliff into darkness, unsure of what will happen when you take a step off into darkness. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And then in my experience, the few people that have had that experience have gone, you're free. Yeah. That's it. There's no more control issues. There's no more any of the other characteristics and anxiety that comes with those control issues. You're just free. And that freedom is independence, independence of mind. And you're liberated from all of the machinations and nasty things that we inflict upon ourselves in the environment that you and I creep around in.
1: I I agree. And I also – I mean it's a very – I think it's a difficult thing for people to achieve obviously. Um, But I I do – Really love the idea of never trying to control anything, and just being this sort of flexible read. That well, whatever happens, I'll just I'll just deal with it when it when it happens. I mean, that's more I think about being mindful and present than than stressing about the past or worrying about the future and not being a prisoner to what if and then and then the why of the past, but just sort of living in the present. But then I guess you know we still do to some degree have to plan for some things right so is it so how how do you relinquish those trappings and still lead a you know a relatively normal integrated life i
3: think the devils in the detail and i think it's not being ambiguous about what it is that you're relying on so you need to make money i need to make money that doesn't mean that we should be looking for a sense of self through our money so here's the or our reputation and inevitably that's what happens what happens is, is, oh yeah, I need some money. I'm getting a nice car. I got a new good washing machine. Everything's going on, on. A holiday twice a year. But are you asking that money? This is what happens: is that you get money and you can't help but some form of to ask some form of affirmation from others. Mm-hmm. Oh look, can't you see how nice the car is? And it all happens because we're ambiguous about it. Right. It all happens because because we're not really sure that we're doing it. We're unclear about the situation. And it's all because we're asking other people to
1: tell us who we are. Well, but the tricky part is that we work in a business that essentially that's part of the economy of what we do. You make you make creative things and then people decide whether or not they like it so that you could then make more creative things. I mean, I guess, you know, I assume a true artist would really just make stuff regardless of how everyone acts, uh, you know. But I, I do I – do, as a stand-up, I do feel like – You do kind of have to form a a relationship with your audience in a certain in a certain way, but
3: that's not the same thing. No, and also you you and I both know that the more scared we are about that, the less objective we are about that, and actually the more fictitious the relationship becomes. Right, right, right. So how do we? liberate ourselves from this condition that we find ourselves in. Have
1: you liberated yourself or you're working on it? No, but it's what the film's about. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: it is literally what the film's about. It is about the – what's the idea of a king? Um, and I, it's funny enough, I gave the story of the prodigal son the other day on, uh, on another podcast but since I've already rinsed that one out let's go for something else there was a, a biblical quote I'm not a big Bible guy but every now three nights ago I was tossing around in my bed I just wanted to write I couldn't find anything so I, the, I was looking for the power thing to, to fire up my computer and I found Gideon's Bible and I opened it in Proverbs or something the one, the first line I read was forgive the bastardization of this quote um, the wicked flee from a pursuer that doesn't exist, <laughs> where the bold where the bold stand as a lion. And like I was say it's a bit of a bastardization, sure. but we were just having a chat about that in the car as we were coming
1: here. Now, what does that mean to you? Uh, well, it means to me that, uh, I mean, it sounds like distrustful people – are the first ones to not trust, and they are the ones that will always think they're being pursued when they're actually there. Basically, you're the source of your own problems, and maybe that's the root of a lot of evil.
3: I'm I'm rather sad that you you gave the answer, but I could have given it. (laughs) But that's it. That's the point, right? The point is, I'm an artist. I've made a film. Now, how tethered am I to the result of that film? So am I in it for the journey or am I in it for the result or the destination? Now, I'm acutely aware that I'm oscillating between both of those positions. So if, if, the, if the wicked are fleeing without a pursuer, then who am I being pursued by other than my own fear? Right. So to echo your point, it's only you that's chasing you. Right. And what is it that you're ultimately chasing is the affirmation of others.
1: Well, I and you're also – I feel like you're running away from your past and you're running towards something in the future that may not even be clearly defined, just something that you feel like is going to fill whatever hole was created when you were probably 13 or 14 years old. So we're back to the crutches again. Right. So – uh, by the way, we're gonna surf in and out of what the film's about. No, no, it's um, great because I, I, I definitely it, I don't want to spoil anything about the movie, but the the explanation of the sword and the stone was one of the most creative things that I And I saw like, oh my god, that makes all the sense in the world. I mean it it was such a it was such a beautiful way to express this idea and explain it. And I had actually just because I'm a big Disney guy, I had just watched Sword in the Stone. The, the 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 King Arthur animated so, somewhat short film um, like two nights before I watched this so it was such a great it was such a great juxtaposition to see that sto- that version of the story and then your version of the story too, um,
3: so on that note, um, the idea of the extraction of the sword from the stone is a kingly move. Right? But why is it a kingly move? It's a kingly move because you are no longer governed by your subjects. You're governed by a sense of self.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: You have left the world behind that you and I have clearly got entangled with in the past and are still entangled with. And you have wrestled to find your own independence. You have become a king within your own kingdom. So this is the journey. And this is the essence of narrative if you will you start off with aristocratic roots you drift off down the river into the material sphere the material sphere tethers you to all its influence you're completely dependent upon your environment and surroundings and then slowly, you through a stepwise fashion of ascending the ladder you start to find some independence all of a sudden you got a bit you got some money then, oh, if I've got some money, I can take a bit of time off work. I can have this. I can have that. There's all sorts of inherent dangers that come with that. But we have to accept that with money comes a certain degree of practical liberation. Sure. Now, and a a continued ascension on this ladder, you're the guy that doesn't want full authority over others. Right? This is our story. So at which point, you, you see, I don't like to see this film as about, an indiv- uh, as about a king within, an Im- uh, within a traditional narrative. I like to see it as a narrative about each man should be the king of his own kingdom.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's about finding individuality in the noise of influence and somehow maintaining your own integrity, which is, as you and I know, the hardest possible thing to do. The temptation of asking someone else to tell us who we are. So anyway... Here he is and he reaches the position of being able to take on all of his history in the metaphor of where this sword is extracted from and to transcend all the influence of the exterior world. And then you go on gradually through wrestling your demons – which are inner rather than outer, but reflect themselves in an outer world. But really, it's about an inner fight. It's about finding yourself within that wrestling match to draw your wellspring of fortitude from within yourself rather than from outside yourself. But what we do is we look for crutches. Oh, am I doing all right? How's it going? (laughs) And you can't help but do that. Oh, I think I might get drunk now because then I can forget about who I really am. (laughs) Oh, I'll have a cigarette because that's a distraction. It's it's all of these things are distractions. If I make more money, people will think more of me. It's a distraction. Mm -hmm. These are all distractions from actually trying to find out who we are. So in this case, he fights down the ultimate demon. And then in the realisation that he's fought down the ultimate internal demon, he realises that those demons were a positive thing because they allowed him the wrestling match, if you will, to develop on his road to independence. Mm -hmm. So at which point you're no longer a victim? At what point are you and I going to accept that we are in charge of our own destinies? As opposed to, again, we're back to crutches. Oh, please tell me who I am. Own it, be it, inhabit it, and trust yourself. And then at which point you flip from being subservient to dominant. You now are in a big enough position to see what was previously persecuting you as your blessing. Your curses go from curses to blessings because you realize that your curses were the
1: very thing that allowed you to develop. Right, right. Well, yeah, because you you don't get stronger without – some type of an opposing force you don't so it it's not terrible (laughs) and in a lot of cases you know sometimes you'll see um uh i'm trying to think of a good example but where someone made a thing an art thing a movie thing you know whatever an album that was really amazing and then you find out oh yeah they fought the whole time with the studio or whoever but ultimately they made this really great thing and then the next one they got to do whatever they wanted and it wasn't that it wasn't as good cuz they got to do whatever they wanted and it didn't really you know like they they just were able to throw money at problems that they had to creatively solve before and by the way it's a, it's a
3: trope in the film business that w- what washes away creativity quicker than the money hose <laughs> So you, there's this balance between having enough money to express what it is that you're doing and not so much that you go, actually, I'm lazy. Right. That would be easy. What we'll do is we'll throw another $5 million at the problem. <laughs> and then you and I are sitting in the audience and going, ah, oh, it felt like a shortcut. It right. Felt like, and worse, it felt like an expensive shortcut. Right. Which feels la- like it's lazy. But I think you're clearly more, you're quite sophisticated in this conversation. Um... It's the idea... How can you develop? How can you become a better chess player by playing worse chess players? You can't. How can you become a better wrestler by fighting people that are weaker than you? I mean, it's consistent all the way through from top to the end. So I think this all has a rather happy ending. However, you are fighting the ultimate opponent, but the ultimate opponent is you. But... In the end, if you can transcend that, if you can recognise that you're in charge, you're the master of your own house and not the butler, because, as we've discovered even in this conversation and just running up to this conversation, that lies have no legs to stand on. In the end, our narrative that we're supporting about who we are is weak. It's weak because it doesn't exist. We just invent it in we our We've invented it. It's a story that doesn't exist. Right, right. So when push comes to shove, when you're looking down the barrel of a gun, she deserts you like the cruel mistress that she is.
1: <laughs> I, I wonder if – and I've – you know, people don't oh, not – not everyone really likes this point of view, but I do feel like we are so much more responsible for – our lives than we would be willing to admit in general, and then you say that, and people go, "Fuck you, man! This happened, or you know, I lost my job, and that's not my fault." And then I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." There's some things you can't control, but I think if you really took a look at it, there is an there would be an alarming percentage of, oh, I guess instead of going out and you know whatever. Getting drunk that night or playing video games all night—I could have done something constructive, and though that incrementally over time does yield more positive results, but I think in the end, you really do have to—you really do have to like the process, and you really do have to, I think, embrace growth. I think in its, it, embracing growth is probably the best way to approach it because when something is growing, it's not dying, and when something's not growing, it's dying. And so I think embracing growth is at least a good way to navigate, in some senses. Well, you have to ask yourself the question, what's going to help me? But how do you know what's helping you if you don't know what you want?
3: No, I think what you do want is liberation. Right. That's clear. So, but how, by complaining, by being the victim, which is the easiest thing to do in the world, by the way, because the alibi is uh, often stout and consistent. Right. Um, It's not helping you. It's, it's a default setting. I'm included in this equation mm-hmm. to go, oh, help. It's just <laughs> this. this um, I don't have any power. This thing did it to me. That's all true. Right. But how is that helping you? How is that empowering you by projecting all the authority outside of you? The truth is, at some stage, if you want to help yourself, you better help yourself. Now, that's, there's nothing easy about any of that. That's, a, that's another conversation. But if what you're after is independence, if what you're after is to be in control of your life, that's the, only, that's the only road that you can be on. Did you ever read Man's Search for Meaning? No, but I know what you're talking about. So the summary of this book is – well, for me anyway. You know, people, It's replete with kind of clever quotes. But the summary of the book is that the last of man's great freedoms is he can't choose what happens to him, but he can choose how – He reacts to it. Right. He can choose his attitude. Right. So this is a geezer that has spent four years in a concentration camp and witnessed the most unpleasant acts that man has ever committed to another ban. And that's that's what it all boiled down to. In the end, when push came to shove, when you're looking down the barrel of a gun, you still have the authority to choose your attitude towards what's happening to you. So what voice is it in us that's trying to dissuade us that you have any authority? It's uh, the voice that's looking for a crutch. <laughs> or it's
1: probably being raised Catholic. <laughs> it's probably Catholic guilt. You're never allowed to, you know. Yeah, I mean, come on. Come on. There's a, there's a great – I've told this story a million times, but it's – a, a, I had a therapist once who told me this really great joke and it instantly made sense to me she said two irish catholics are watching a sunset it's the most beautiful sunset they've ever seen the sky is painted with all these incredible colors and they knew that this was such a special moment and they may never have it again and the one turns to the other and goes "oh we're going to pay for this one" <laughs> or it's just like that idea of like you can't you know there's punishment follows anything good that 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 sort of issue of you know so, it, Universal but ultimately self-flagellation, you know? There it is. So maybe maybe that's it. And maybe it's an antiquated idea of being able to keep people in line, keep people controlled so that they come together and form a society that can be controlled – by a politician or a church or whatever, and it just it just sort of bled into our emotional DNA. But you think about the foundation of everything that you've just said. The
3: foundation of everything you've just said is from the beginning, you're asking someone else to tell you how you should feel about yourself. <laughs> right, right, right. So the entire structure of your sense of self is dependent upon a system of some description. Right. There is no
1: inner strength in that paradigm at all. Right. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And But the question is, for people listening, Go, okay, fine, I understand all that. How do I achieve personal autonomy? Fuck knows. <laughs> That's just the goal. But I like, you know, the, there's so many things to kind of go back and unpack that we've talked about so far, and, and one of them uh, being this idea of being result-oriented. You know, it's like you can't control, when you're talking about the movie release, you, can, I mean, you can't control the release, you can't control whether or not, you know, people are going to go see stuff, Uh, so how do you, is that, I assume that's just all ego garbage, you know, of like trying to control the result and what if, and how do I, and what is the. It is, I agree with you, but I am
3: tethered to my ego garbage. So, (laughs) so the reason I'm having this conversation is because it's a a catharsis for me. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Because I'm completely aware of the fact that I'm oscillating between these two conditions about being result orientated and process orientated and if i can wear the hat that you've got on right now to say oh i'm just a director and a guy that's that's had by the way making a film is incredibly i'm the guy that enjoys making movies right right so there has been up to this point absolutely nothing negative about my entire experience of making this film so how can i lose right now God forbid the film doesn't make much money, and you know one thing leads to another. It all sort goes spirals down in the wrong direction. But how does that affect me? It doesn't ultimately. It doesn't affect me because okay, I may not you know make another movie. I may not get much money, but you know what? I'm still going to survive. Right. However, the other sense of me is going. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to be seen as diminished in this
1: equation. Sure. And I can feel the weakness in that. Okay, so let me ask you this. So let's, because sometimes it helps to. When I get into certain situations, sometimes I go, I like to go, okay, and then what? So, in other words, you come up against this wall, which is whatever your ultimate fear is, or your ultimate, oh, that can't happen, or, you know, whatever it is. But I feel like people just stop there. And rarely do you go. Okay, then what? So if that happens, if you if this doesn't work, if you feel diminished, if people are like, "Guy, what does he think he's doing over there? What's over?" You know, then what happens?
3: Okay. By the way, I I love your way of thinking because it's curious how we don't want to pursue that line of inquiry that you've just mentioned. Right. right? Then what? Then what? Then what? You ask that question twice, and you suddenly get distracted because you can (laughs) already tell that ultimately the answer to that question is threatening to your false sense of self, right? Because if you keep going down that road, you're going to have to surrender a false sense of self. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is with surrendering a full sense of self, you have to surrender a sense of self. Right. At which point, who are you? you, (laughs) And you press into the old self-value calculator, where is this taking me? And what comes out of the old calculator is annihilation.
1: Maybe. Because you're going to have to give that up. You're going to have to die before you can live again. But maybe that's the freedom that's on the other side of that chasm, you know, if you're
3: like, well, what else can there be? Because all all, as I know is that I am scared about something that doesn't
1: exist. I'm back to my Gideon Bible quote (laughs) about the righteous man. It's fucking Gideon. It's not. By the way, who is Gideon? I don't know. You know, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks is a great comic who's not alive anymore. But he had a great bit about you know. Who the fuck is G- you know where the where do the Gideons? Is there a Gideon? You know, and and I don't. I've never. See,
3: only time you ever hear about Gideon, I heard it in a song, Gideon's Bible. Can remember it's like in Hotel California right. or one of those songs. And since then, I didn't even know about Gideon until he popped up three days ago on my bedside table.
1: Yeah, I you know I know he, he's his name is in a lot of the hotel. If you look, it says you know the Bible placed by the Gideons. I don't know who the Gideons are. Well, whoever they are, good for them. Hey, you have an internet connection. Look up and see if you can figure out who the Gideons are. So. Christian
0: evangelicals.
1: Oh. Christian evangelicals. <laughs> it tracks, guys. It tracks. It tracks. Uh, but I do think that uh, maybe that's part of the path in finding this liberation that you're talking about. Because ultimately, I think when you do start pursuing those questions... Yes, it can. I do think what-if questions are some of the worst questions people ask themselves because they tend to be the most harmful. Because you, your brain does create these realities that... Well, it, it has its agenda. It has its very, and, it own agenda. And its it,
3: agenda wants to sustain its position of authority, although it ultimately
1: has no position of authority. That's right. That's absolutely right. But I think there is a scenario that exists where you go, okay, so if all of these worst fears happen, then what? Then your brain possibly might say oh, I guess I just survived somehow, you know, I guess I live through it, you know, or I guess I just do another thing, or I guess I just make something else, or I guess it's not as, I think it's, you know, it's walking up to the scary door that's rumbling, and, you know, you can see the shapes pushing through the door like a Nightmare on Elm Street, and there's, you know, blood pouring out, and then you open the door and you look and you go, okay, well... You push all that out of the way. You go, okay, I guess this is just a room. You know, I guess it's just another place. It's another another path. It's not the end of the world. You see it, it's not the end. Well, hold on.
3: Is it even, is it better than that? I don't know. Well, neither do I. But what I am aware of is what I'm scared of. Nine-tenths out of my fears are fictitious. So what happens if I take away all of my fictitious fears?
1: What happens to the real ones? Um, I don't know. Neither do I. Quite like to find out. I think... I think that I think fear is an addiction or or maybe even a habit, you know, because I think we get very humans don't have a lot of control over anything. I mean, our our control is an illusion. And I think we create like we were just like we were talking about before and earlier. So we sort of create all these things that make us feel like we understand everything. But in the end, we really don't understand anything. And so. You know, We do a lot of superstitious things, even non-religious people without even realizing it. And I think one of the most superstitious things we do is to go, okay, I have to create a pattern of fear because that is what I have always done and I've always gotten through it. So maybe if I am fearful all the time, then it's all going to work out okay in the end. Like we create these superstitious infrastructures. I'm
3: with you, brother. (laughs) I'm with you. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. I mean, fear is the ultimate expression of powerlessness. So if, you're, if, you, if you follow the consistency of our narrative all the way through, every time you give up a little bit of your authority that you're not in, in control, you must be adding to the reservoirs of fear. Mm-hmm. You must be. It feels to me like every action that you do during a day is either empowering or you're giving your power away. Right. It's one
1: or the other. Well, is, the, is there a little bit of a paradox here then? I think – is an all truth a paradox? Well, yes, but but in the idea that we're saying, OK, um, conflict makes you stronger. Conflict equals growth when you get through it. So if you are liberated and free and you essentially have no emotional conflict anymore because everything ultimately you believe is going to work out somehow, do you, is, is that the ultimate form of enlightenment or do you just stop growing at that point?
3: I think that's a very good question. I don't know the answer. I know, so let's follow it through. Okay. Let's, let's try and be consistent with the uh, direction that this conversation is going I like in. it. I would argue that you don't. You're not actually looking for paradise. Okay. I think that's a game that you're, the other side is playing. Mm-hmm. It's looking for liberation from itself. It's trying to lift up a plank that it's standing on. It can't find liberation from itself. Only you can. But we're back to... How can you keep developing if you've got nothing to develop against? Right. So if you're in this sphere, shouldn't you take advantage of this sphere? Is it like being projected into a gym? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, whilst you're in a gym, you might as well make hay while the sun shines. You're not going to get any stronger unless you keep chucking all the weights of the gym around. Right. You can't just sit on your ass and sort of ignore it. Well, you can, but you're not taking full advantage of the environment that you've been thrown in. So I think it's not so much about goal orientation other than gradual emancipation. It's right. almost a poem.
1: <laughs> you should write it down. You should absolutely write that down. But I love that idea that, you know, I'm sure you saw the original Matrix. And where he says, you know, where the agent says to uh, Morpheus, you know, our original design for your people was basically a utopia. And you rejected it. You couldn't, ha- you know, like you couldn't handle it. And I, I really believe that. I believe that, you know, uh, that if there were some sort of, because a utopia, I think the idea is such a moment. It's such a moment. I mean, think of every thing that you've achieved in your career. And, you know, going back to Lockstock being a huge hit. You go. Oh, this is the thing that I wanted. I got it. How long did that feeling last? Less than thirty seconds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this idea that you had probably built up in your head of boy, if I can do this, then wow, think about that world. And then you got there and you're like, oh, this is oh, okay. Well, you know, you've only got to pick up the trophy to know that the trophy's hollow.
3: But sometimes <laughs> you need to pick it up. Ah, that's funny. You need to pick it up. You need to, you need to hold it, wave it about a bit, and go... And, hello, there's a, there's a sham going
1: on here. Right. But until you've actually picked it up, do you really know that? Mm-hmm. Well, it, I mean, I guess it drives you to make the next thing. And, the next and learn thing. the lesson again. And <laughs> learn the lesson again and learn the lesson again and learn the lesson again. So um, there's another quote that I got from old Gideon. <laughs>
3: Oh, but you got my phone there. But instead of me bastardising these quotes, shall I give you this one? Please. It's right on cue all right. from uh, the very thing that we're talking about, right? So, first of all, let me give you the first one, which is, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Okay? Okay. Now, this one I thought was quite effective. It's the kind of thing that I've heard in a, more, in a movie I would think it was really cool. It's the kind of thing that would pop up in Pulp Fiction. As a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a specific metaphor (laughs) and such a beautiful metaphor. It's such a beautiful metaphor. But isn't it right? Is it
3: exactly what you're saying? Yeah. You just keep repeating what you're doing. Well, how many trophies are going to pick up and find
1: out they're hollow? Right. But, you know, you still... Boy, did you uh, did you happen to watch the FX series Betty and Joan about uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford? No, it's really fascinating because it explores this exact idea of no- of nothing ever being enough, and ultimately, these two people who were you know essentially pillars in their own in their own way in their own industry. Uh, basically, at, at least the way that the story was portrayed Died alone and unhappy And, and, and had achieved all these things And had all these obstacles but, but just, it was never, ever, 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 ever enough Ever But isn't that because we're looking for love in all the wrong places? Of course Of course And so you think the right places are the, the ones inside yourself? Well, all that I'm aware of is I find it very hard to access
3: any inner authority But every now and then you stumble into it. You might even trip over it. Suddenly, someone says something to you, and you go, You just have to be in the mood to go, Yeah, I can can accept that. I can accept what you think about. (laughs) I can accept why you think that and not find it threatening. Right. And you go, Well, no, that's interesting. So, is it illusory? I'm also aware that if you go traveling or you go on holiday or something, and then you're away from the currency of the environment that you're thrown in. So all of a sudden, this is really important. This film coming out is really important to you. And yet, if I was asking around on a beach in Sri Lanka, and completely out of that environment, it wouldn't have the same currency on me. Right. Right? So how's
1: that work? So it's real, but it's only real in that environment? Well, I think it's, you know, part of it is, especially because of, of what you do. I, I mean, I think directing is, is not something I would ever, I mean, I can't even really wrap my mind around that kind of puppeteering because you legitimately are, have to take responsibility for all of it. I mean, you really do have to engineer the entire thing and have a complete, you have to have an eye for detail, but also be able to see the complete picture at the same time. And, uh, and so you spend a lot of time in your head which is a dangerous thing to do. Or not. Or not. But I think when you are constantly problem-solving, 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 putting out fires, putting out fires, putting out fires, when there aren't any, you tend to start building them to put them out. Okay. Let's look at it in a different way. Okay. Um, Let's look at them as
3: challenges. Good. Right? In in, in another word, each one of them is a chess match of sorts, physical or intellectual. Now, I like chess matches. The difference is is there not, a chess match isn't a problem. It's a challenge. Right. So there's a shift in consciousness between you being subservient to it as opposed to you enjoying the interaction. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing is with filmmaking is I'm projected into a world that I set up a good precedent for my attitude within it. And I think that's because I was in the bottom run of the ladder. And eventually when I started directing things, I was so – Desirous to express and create, I set up a, a. I was very strict with myself about staying in a good mood. Now I'm not like that in the rest of my life, but because I started directing at 25, I was old enough to be appreciative of the position that was given to me, as opposed to you know I'd set up bad habits before that And the rest of my life because I, like you and everyone else in the world, is subject to getting kicked around. Of course, right? now. <laughs> I didn't let negativity creep into my role as a film director simply because I was so appreciative as for my role as a film director. Ivan, let me give you that. Otherwise, I've just got to keep buzzing around. Thank you. So I found that there's a consistency with my character within when I'm wearing the director's hat. Mm-hmm. And I found because I'm strict with myself at the beginning, I was strict with myself in the middle, and I'm still strict with myself with it because I'm still appreciative of it. It's very hard for negativity to creep into me. In that environment, when I got that hat on, I've never lost my, my temper on a film set. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I've got to tell you, I'm shocked because <laughs> I tell you, I'm quite moody outside the film set. <laughs> What's well, your safe zone? Yeah, it's an odd thing. And I think it's just because I set up a disciplined narrative, a disciplined, a disciplined role as a film director initially. And since then it's consistent. And so when you throw a challenge at me in the film world I go, "Oh, I like that." And I can roll my sleeves up and I you know, it, for example in this film, it films have their own direction that they want to go in. And really me is there I'm the I'm the lion tamer if you will. I'm I'm steering the head of the lion. And my job is to feel the energy of the film, which direction it's going and what the tonality is. And in this film, we had, you know, Guinevere going out with King Arthur in a sort of traditional sense. And then within two weeks of making this film, it became apparent that that's not what the film wanted. So it was a complete rewrite. But that rewrite, if I had um, made a mess in my pants, would have <laughs> would have spiralled out of control and turned into a another narrative in itself mm-hmm. but you know what i didn't i liked it because i wasn't victimized by it i went oh hello this could be fun and everyone else that i'm around was also in the same state of mind oh god could, let's have a crack at this you could feel that at the door from your mate saying this is a disaster we're all in trouble but you know what you kept him out the door so much <laughs> that he knew he was only going to get three knocks before he had to be on his bike. Right. So we completely rewrote it, and it took us about two hours to rewrite the entire thing. <laughs> well, that it's... And you wouldn't have known, would you? No. In fact, not only wouldn't you have known, can you now imagine there being that romantic relationship in there? It would feel inconsistent. It would have been a different movie. It would
1: have been a different movie. Right. But I think that uh, it sounds like this... It sounds like you have the freedom in this one system. You have this autonomy in that system, and it sounds like you're trying to figure out how to take the way that you are when you're on a film set and apply that to the rest of your life. And how do you do that?
3: <laughs> That's exactly what it is. How do you apply those rules to the rest of your life? Uh, to the rest of your life. You see, when I'm on a film set, I'm wearing a hat. Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm out in this world, am I wearing a hat? So it was a hat and a hat and a hat. And I'm never clear about when it's on, when it's off. And then I'm I'm objective when I'm on a film set. I'm not objective when I'm off a film set. But then some people are. Right. You can see some people don't rattle. Most people rattle. But it feels to me like we're good at some things and not good at other things. But you're of an age, I'm of an age, where we've realized what glitters isn't gold. Mm -hmm. So now we're in the business of trying to work out, well, what is?
1: (laughs) Well, you know who you are in a film set. And it sounds like you know exactly who you are in a film set. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be as comfortable as you are in a film set. But, you know, it's a role. It is, but it's still you. It's a, it's a, you're playing, but I'm playing is what I'm doing. I think – I don't know if that's true. What if, what if it's the opposite? What if that's who you are and you're playing when you're not on a set and that's why you don't know what you're doing, you know? Like, it, that, that you could what you could be connecting with is the purest form of who you are and that's why you're so comfortable. So I, you're assuming it's a role, which I think is doing yourself a disservice. might not actually be the role. This might, the, the other guy might be the role. I have
3: to tell you, I'm enjoying this interview enormously. <laughs> I, I have a feeling I'm going to have to leave some money on the table when I depart. <laughs> <laughs> I like that theory very much. Do you trust levity? Do I trust it? Of course I do. So do I. You see, when I whenever anything gets heavy, I smell a rat. Mm-hmm. So on a film set, I'm aware that there's levity involved in it because I'm somehow not. My identity isn't identity isn't tied up within it, so I can afford to skate across the surface. I can afford to be objective, right? And then what happens in our life when we get all heavy and you lose that sense of levity. And I, my feeling is, is whenever you're losing
1: levity, there's a rat in the kitchen. Right. Yeah, I, a hundred, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Because levity, comedy, humor is all about flexibility and being able to take something horrible or tragic and flip it so that you can essentially gain control over it by laughing at it you know it's basically it's a deflecting it's a corruption really of the apparent spell that you're under right
3: so what happens is, is when and by the way that you know there's there's you couldn't outfox yourself on this one you can keep you can make a joke and it may not be funny Right. you know it's coming okay. from a part of you that actually is trying to make little right. of something rather than corrupt the authenticity of the narrative that mm-hmm. you're hearing mm-hmm. so You can feel the difference when someone says something that's funny and witty that corrupts that heaviness, right? And I like that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's. I feel like that's you know, it's a survival mechanism. You know, it's a survival mechanism, and it's also um, a community building exercise. When people come together to find something, and they all find something funny in common, that's basically a way of saying we're all part of the same tribe. We're all safe. Everything's okay. You know, everything's going to be okay. We're all all right because we can laugh.
3: Yeah, it feels like sort of right sizing of priorities. Right. When you, you, you're, you're going down this road, this rather dark cul-de-sac. Right. And all of a sudden you go, oh, <laughs> I'm actually, that's only a role. Right. That's only a hat that's taking me down there, right. that cul-de-sac. What, and that what seems to happen is the joke, the levity corrupts. The authority of the hat. Absolutely. And you just lift up and you go, yeah, but my
1: identity isn't threatened by it. Right. Right. But that just comes from, you know, a comfort, a certain comfort level. And I think the laughter and that the expression of that is basically just like venting gas. It's just venting... It's like a, "Ah, okay, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's a trope in, in
3: narrative. What you do in narrative is you wind it up, you wind it up, and then you have comic release. Right. So it is a release of sorts. So what we do in narrative is find tropes that are consistent with our personality outside of the narrative. It's a narrative reflecting a narrative. Right. So if you're coming back to the Kingly story... You're coming back to it's both an individual story and a collective story. Mm-hmm. So everyone's on this journey, and I can't help but feel that Charlie Hunnam is the nicest guy in the world. Such, a, by such a sweet guy. And he's more than nice, he's smart. Yes. Right, so he's got all sorts of interesting components
1: creeping around inside And Charlie. he also has this really great accent, which I can't quite that put you my can't finger <laughs> I on. I can't figure out exactly where it's from. It's Geordie, it's hard. It's 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 mesmerizing.
3: That's yeah. Yeah, good. I love him. Yeah, he's. Oh no! I tell you, the more you work with him, the more you love him too. And I can't help but feel that Charlie is on the journey that King Arthur was uh, is on the journey. Charlie's smart enough to be like. If Charlie becomes a massive movie star, I would trust that Charlie Hunnam would not be corrupted by being a
1: massive movie star. Right, right. Well, and that's the danger because anything that anything that's ego. That can be ego based is really dangerous because the ego stuff feels good and it's alluring and it's the siren that's pulling you into the rocks, you know, like it's a, so how do you, I mean, I say this all the time to my manager. If I get rattled about something, I go, I'm pretty sure this is an ego thing. I'm pretty sure this is ego stuff and I'm admitting to you right now that this is probably dumb and it's just my ego and really old issues that I have. And I hope, he, <laughs> I hope he understands what I mean when I say that.
3: Oh, I understand what you mean <laughs> when you say that. Because it's the temptation of the crutch. Right. The crutch, for the moment, feels like an immediate band aid. Mm-hmm. It feels like an immediate fix. And you just get a little rush of energy where the back of your mind is saying, Ooh, I'm going to live just a little bit more. I'm augmented. Just a little bit more by that crutch, right. stable by that crutch, so you 're sitting around a room with a load of people slagging someone else off, and if you get involved in that equation it 's only because you 're asking other people to think more of you right right right, right? so you 're tempted to go, "Oh yeah, I think John is a tit too." <laughs> <laughs> and then just for a second, you just go, <gasps> you drink in. Well, there's a chemical shift that takes place within you where what you're thinking is happening is, is a little round of applause where everyone around you goes, oh, good, Johnny. Oh, good, Fred. You're one of us. Right. And you're accepted by the group. It's com- You're completely throwing all of your authority outside of yourself onto the table, and you're asking them to tell you who you are. But in that moment, it
1: feels good. Boy, you know what, though? The The other side of the coin is... The person who, because I, you know, I'm so interested to, I'm so interested when people are just naturally magnetic and you go, wow, that person, I don't know what it is about them, but boy, I just want to watch them and listen to what they say. And, you know, that like George Clooney, like anyone. And then some of it I think comes from when someone doesn't need you, they are attractive and they're attractive because I think it just goes back to old survival things like, well, that person has an answer that I don't have. They don't need me. They must have dominant genes. And then uh, – but the other side of the coin – the other side of that coin is what if they're a sociopath? Like is, is someone who is a sociopath technically free because they don't really even understand or appreciate that other people have needs? Like at what point is that freedom you know, antithetical to human interaction and, and being a part of the, the human story? Uh, the curious
3: thing is, you and I think in a very similar fashion because I've been thinking a lot about this situation recently. And here's my theory on it, is that once you see someone as independent, right, so the very thing that you're talking about, you go, oh, look, they're, oh, they've got some magnetism about it. There's a, they are giving off an air that they need nothing from you. Right. And because that that is what is radiated from that personality you were drawn to it because you sniff some strength within it Mm -hmm. however simultaneously it's also attractive because that person is now safe because that person doesn't want to exploit you or manipulate you in any way right so you feel predisposed to lean into them sure because you know they want nothing from you right so what we've got to do is the same thing. But because we are trying to manipulate others through charm, looks, intellect, or funny jokes... Right. We're looking for a little bit of a kickback. Right. <laughs> a, little, a little palm. A little backhand. Yeah, there. here you go, hey. And we can sense it. Mm-hmm. The old intellect is doing a little bit of calculation, and you go, oh, I know what you're up to here, brother. <laughs> and sometimes you can be very sophisticated, but somehow... You're not as attracted to that person as you are attracted to the other person because intuitively you've worked it out that that person is trying to manipulate you for a sense of self, right. where the other person is self-contained. Right. So I don't subscribe to the sociopath thing because that's a different thing. Okay. They give off a bad energy, mm-hmm. which is disconnected. It's indifferent. Yes. They're dead to humanity. Mm-hmm. They don't need you because they need you so much they cannot afford to need you. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. So they've severed the tie between themselves and you.
1: That makes sense. I, 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 have, I had this theory um, that I know I've said before. I blogged about it. I wrote about it. But it's the idea that I think confidence comes from – um, feeling like you have a lot of options Like when you have options you're, You you feel like, okay, everything's going to be okay. I have a lot of options And desperation comes from I don't have any options I need this thing so bad Because I don't have any options And so how can you Change the way you perceive things To understand That you may actually have more options than you think you have in in a given situation. But
3: you're back to man's search for meaning.
1: Yes, yes, yes. You're back to
3: you only have one freedom. Yes. So stop deluding yourself that you have another freedom. Right. You have no other freedoms. You can't control what's happened to you in the world. Right. The only thing you can control is your attitude towards what happens to you. Right. Now, we're unclear about that. We need to be clear about that. You have the ultimate freedom. Are you on social media at all? Ish.
1: You are on Instagram. I'm on Instagram.
3: <laughs> I haven't. I posted one thing in the last month, which I think is something to do with a film. Other than that, I, I'm a little bit cautious about that. One. I would be if I because I, I do think
1: that it has all of the. If you know inherent dangers. Yes. Yeah, I'm smelling them. Yeah, and they're there. You know, they're there, and it is. It is. It, it is attractive to. The ego, it is attractive for all the reasons that you say. It's crutchy, it's a distraction, it's everything that you say, and... I don't. The fucking most confident, strongest person in the world could have an off day, and some guy's like, "Hey, the thing you did was dumb." And you're gonna be like, "What the fuck?" And then that's it, you know. And then you're, and then you've lost.
3: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am aware of the dangers, but here's here's the other side, right? There's a consistency to shine and shade in this one. Mm-hmm. However, positive something is, is however negative something's going to be. Right. I have to tell you, the interests that I've pursued through Instagram are. Pretty fantastic. I didn't – I've discovered about craft knives. Mm-hmm. I've discovered about craft beer. Mm-hmm. I've discovered curious little in esoteric interest that you would never understand there was a community before. Like I happen to like barbecuing. I'm a big fan of a chef called Francis Mallman. I like foo- food, which I always – I ha- although I adore food – There's a rather camp attitude towards food as Mm -hmm. opposed to a caveman's. I'm, In the end of the day, I'm quite a primitive character. (laughs) So I like cooking outdoors. I like a steak and I like a fire. And my golly, I will spend 10 hours a day around a barbecue. Mm -hmm. And once you start getting to the nuances of barbecuing, you're off to the races. So all of a sudden, I've got craft knives, cutting up my craft steaks, (laughs) drinking my craft beer on my craft barbecue. Yeah. All of this. Has happened through Instagram. Well, that's the that's the proper use of it. Just don't read the comments. So, <laughs> just if you can somehow exploit, in the best possible use of that word, the the geeky interests yes. that you should have, it's magnificent. What you cannot afford to do is start dabbling for a sense of self within it.
1: Well, that's that's exactly the thing. I mean, it's basically you know the internet, social media is essentially the gods going here's fire. And people are going, wow, this is great! I can heat my cave. I can cook meat, and so I don't die. Uh, I can also burn down that fucking guy's house over there because fuck <laughs> him, right? Fuck him! Did you see the size of that cave? Fuck that guy, you know. And so it's it's basically the what you're talking about. I think is the its intended use, which is to bring people together, to enlighten, to understand that at this point in time, we have the sum total of human knowledge in our pockets at all times. And that is no small thing. I mean, you think about even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, what people had access to. And now it's just all of it, an external brain, you know. And, of course, we take it for granted and we, you know, we use it for ego and, you know. We're not cautious. We're not cautious at all. We are not cautious. It takes work to be cautious. It takes energy to be cautious. It does. But by golly, it pays dividends, doesn't it? (laughs) It It does when you do it. Yeah, it does when you do it. But you've had such an interesting... I mean, you know, this twenty-year career. When did you start? to – Ninety-eight was Lockstock was ninety-eight. Ninety-eight, yeah, yeah. And how long? I mean, did you seems like you knew because that's a pretty young to start to come off with a, a movie that impactful. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight years old, I imagine. Is that? Did you always want to do that? Is that something you knew you wanted to do? No, life has
3: revealed itself as a rather happy and challenging accident. So I'm completely illiterate, right? I spend most of my day writing. And most of the most of the day is me asking people how you spell words. So no uh, spell check can comprehend what it is (laughs) that I'm trying to make manifest. So Ivan, who's sitting here on the right, is almost as illiterate as me. <laughs> and then we have the whole chain of command. In fact, we have it, we employ someone, um, Skinny
1: Jack, who um, <laughs> who's the only clever one. He's the only one with a formal education. I love that the people in your life are like characters in a Guy Ritchie movie. Skinny Jack would be a character in a movie. Ivan would be a character in a movie. Like it, 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 Bo- Bobby the Tits is <laughs>
3: Bobby. <laughs> Bob in tits has been with us longer than, longer than any of us.
1: I mean, it's, this, do you see the parallel between your life and the, and the, the stuff you create? Yeah, uh, I do. I do, is the answer. What, that. Is the, what, is the, what is the ultimate source of that, do you think? Um,
3: I was interested in the Loric tradition of telling a story. There was an old cottony geezer that used to live in a gym... In South London, I used to go to. I started going there when I was seven, and I stopped going there when I was about 30. Oh, wow. And there was an old Jewish geezer that lived behind the jump. It's a wonderful term, jump. Do you know <laughs> what the jump is? No. The jump is the bar.
1: Okay, gotcha. And I, I
3: don't know where it comes from, but any opportunity I can use the term jump, I'm quickly Good. Uh, I'm quick in there. I suppose it's because you used to jump over it, right? Okay. So in a, in a gym, you also have a jump, right? So there was this old geezer that used to tell these stories. And he was caught up with the traditional way of telling Loric lore. So he would start with a narrative about Jimmy the Hood and how Jimmy the Hood you know, made his first few quid. And he went from one thing to another thing in The Ascension. And I was completely transfixed by this methodology of telling a narrative, which was completely fresh. It was revolutionary into the way I had heard stories told before. So, and it it, it was just an old Cotney's way of telling a story, and they somehow knew how to inject these larger than life characters that allowed you to extract yourself from the mundane life you were living. But they were characters that surrounded you, right? And then all of a sudden, no longer were they characters that surrounded you. They were movie stars. Mm -hmm. And his stories would go on for about five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, they had made such an impression on me because of all the idiosyncrasies that were revealed within these characters that were hidden initially. So he would find something in them, and my golly, do you have to be Detail orientated and waiting to find a certain ca- a certain flaw, if you will, or a plus within that person's character, extract it and turn that into the fundamental thing that drove the narrative. So, no longer was the story portrayed in a traditional fashion; it was portrayed in a Loric tradition, uh, in a loric tradition, if you will. Yes, so. If you listen to a song that comes from the eighth century or the twelfth century or anything that's antiquated, you'll find that we use a couple of them in, in King Arthur. We used a couple of them because it's no longer a song in a traditional sense; it's a poem. It's a commentary on our condition. It's to do with spirits. It's to do with the mystical interpretation of life. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it captures a beginning, a middle, and an end in a traditional way. And all of that is concertinaed into a three-and-a-half-minute song because before we had all these other different expressions of media, before we just had songs being songs, before we had theatre being theatre, before we had films being films, we just had poetry, but to call it poetry is not to capture the breadth of the commentary upon all of our interests in, our, in the human condition. So the lauric tradition somehow captures more than one line, one commentary about our condition. And it's a tradition that can only exist within law, and it can't really exist on the page. There is no school that you could go to that can teach you how to understand the Loric tradition. Because by its definition, it can't be captured by the establishment. Because once it's captured by the establishment, it loses all of its currency. It's like street speak.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I completely understand what you're saying. And also, it's interesting to think of that period of time when it wasn't just a frivolity. It was like, uh, oh, this is how history is being passed down. This is how tradition is being passed down. It's not just we're doing it, you know, just cause it's fun and silly. It's like, that was a, that was a part of their, like you said, cultural currency. A- as we're wrapping this up, I have an interesting thought experiment for you, which is in your search for meaning in your search for who you are. What if you imagined this geezer, how would this geezer tell your story? Of who you are, who would you be? How would he express this idea to someone else? And maybe therein lies a little bit of truth for you or who, who you are.
3: It's an interesting question, and I think I can answer it. Okay.
1: But I don't think it's
3: unique to me. Okay. I think it's also about you. All right. Because I believe that all of us are on the same journey. Mm-hmm. And that journey is a state of independence, As an individual, it's about getting rid of all of our crutches. It's what King Arthur is about. Mm -hmm. It's about the ascension from complete independence upon other people telling you who you are to complete independence of your deriving your sense of self from you. So the film that we made is really applicable to the journey I'm on. Right. And if I'm on it... You're in it too, pal. Right, I we're
1: in it. We're in it. (laughs) I just want a cool nickname. I just want a cool nickname so I can be a part of the gang, you know. And then the therapist. I love it. I'll be the therapist. I will be. Actually, that's kind of true. A lot, a lot of the stuff that I do is somewhat therapeutic. Is it a therapist or the shrink? The shrink. You like, you like The Shrink? I think The Shrink's better. Than the therapist bangs on a bit. Oh, so you shit. Like, you're going to go see The Shrink? Hey, <laughs> tell me about your mother. <laughs> okay, so i still got to have like a gangster accent. Hey, your mom, tell me about your parents. Yeah. Uh, King Arthur, is King Arthur open? I knew you had the premiere last night. No, the premiere is tonight. The actually. premiere is tonight? Yeah. The premiere, by the way, I got, a, I got an alert on Waze that said, Ready? King Arthur premiere. You're kidding. No. That's good news. It's, te- it's telling people, like, avoid that section of Hollywood because it's going to get crazy. So it actually said King Arthur premiere. It came in as an alert. Did you get it, too? He got it, too. That's genius. Do, yeah. we, do we have to pay for that? I don't what? think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, for coming in. Thank you very much. You uh, I, and I, and, and I want to sign off the podcast today. I want to double sign off the podcast today. So normally we say enjoy your burrito. But... Also, what I think we learned today uh, practice personal autonomy. Freedom!
0: Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.
1: This episode of Nerds Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Ever feel like your head's going to explode? Well, never fear, because Lewis Black is here to rant about your rage. And Lewis Black, the rant is due. A new original series from Audible Channels. Uh, you can rant about everything from politics to relationships, whatever you want. And then Lewis just tees it off for you. You get something off your chest, and then Lewis gives you something to rage about. You get something off your chest, and Lewis gets to rage about something. Uh, I adore Lewis Black, and I cannot be happier that he's doing this. So.